Take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. Mark 9, we'll begin with verse 1 and read through verse 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a, mount, a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh, almighty God and heavenly Father, we come to you because we are quite the opposite. We are, are weak in and of ourselves. Lord, we cannot stand even apart from you. Not to mention, Lord, the constant oppression that, or an opposition that we have to our enemies, the devil, the world, and the flesh. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning. We pray that you would keep and that you would strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we may firmly resist these enemies that are seeking to have us fall. And pray, O oh God, that you would give us great victory together uh, with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our protector. And so, Lord, we pray that you enable us to listen, listen with, with ears of faith this morning, Lord your word that is given to us. May we take it to heart and be encouraged by it. But as your people, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, today, uh, as we return to Mark's gospel, we actually are coming to a new section of Mark's gospel. It, it's a section that is, uh, builds on chapters 1 through 8. Actually, if you take the, the gospel of Mark, you can sort of divide it into to two major sections. Chapters 1 through 8 portrays Christ as king. If, if you recall back in chapter 1, uh, John the Baptist comes on the scene and he is directing the attention of the people back to the Old Testament to show them that Jesus is this Messiah that they've been 
waiting for for a long time. And then Jesus comes on the scene after that, you know, sort of guns a-blazing. He's demonstrating his power. He's demonstrating his authority over sickness, over the demonic world, over creation as he calms the storms, uh, even over sin itself. And, and so Marcus is really uh, pushing to us as his readers to really ask the question, who is this Jesus? And, and, you know, what is his identity? And as we ask that question, we see he is the king. He is the promised Messiah that, that has come, and he comes with tremendous authority and with power. And uh, so the farther you sort of go into these first eight chapters, you see Jesus really bringing to bear upon his disciples, what does it mean that I am the Messiah? Because they understood he was the Messiah, but they didn't fully grasp what that means. And I, I have to be honest with you, brothers and sisters, the more I read the book of Mark, the more I see myself in that. You know, that I know Jesus is Savior, I know Jesus is Lord, but what does that mean? Do I really grasp that to, to the extent that really reflects who Christ is? And so I think these are good things for us to question. Because Jesus wanted his disciples to see that he wasn't just merely a man, but he was the son of man, the anointed one of God. And he would, there is more to him as Messiah than meets the eye. And so he was seeking to convey that to them. But then as we come to chapters 9 through 16, really the focus, uh, while it continues to be on Jesus and who he is, really also the emphasis becomes more upon the cross. And it addresses the question of what did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus come to accomplish? Or what was his mission? And so that's where we get sort of the series title, The King's Cross. Because that's sort of the, the two major sections of, of Mark's gospel. And like I said, the disciples, while they understood Jesus' identity to some extent, at least where they could verbalize it, didn't fully grasp it. And partly because they didn't grasp his mission. They didn't understand what his mission was. They thought it was just to free them from the Romans and to once again establish David's throne uh, upon this earth. And yet, Jesus is moving towards the fulfillment of his true mission, of what God the Father had sent him to do. In the and so in the preparation for the cross, Jesus then... Uh, takes his inner circle of disciple, all right, Peter, James, and John, and he, he takes them upon a mountain and he shows them his glory. Now, the, part of the reason I think Jesus did this was so that this experience might be sort of a solace, a, a comfort to them uh, as they see Christ die upon the cross. Um, because here soon their master, their rabbi, uh, their leader will be killed. Now, of course, they didn't do this perfectly. Um, they actually were very eclipsed by the cross and, and their vision was momentarily blurred. And, and you know that after Christ's death, they were greatly discouraged. But they did eventually understand. I mean, John writes these words in John chapter 1. Verse 14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. 
And that's what I want to talk about this morning is the glory of Christ. I almost actually entitled my sermon that, but I went with something safe called the transfiguration. But I want to talk about Christ's glory. And this morning I want us, first of all, to see the promise of glory in verses 1 and 2. You see, the Jews were looking for glory to come right when the Messiah had arrived. They were looking to see his great power, uh, his, his radiance. And, and while Jesus did show his power in, in the opening chapters of, of Mark, he didn't do so as the Jews had expected towards the Romans. And so I wondered what the disciples thought as they heard Jesus' words in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, where he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. It just makes you wonder how they were processing that and how they were thinking about that. Now, one of the things that, that we know is that Jesus' kingdom will not come in glory and power ultimately until the second coming of Christ. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look back at Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, Jesus describes that uh, when he comes with the glory of his Father with, with his angels. And so some commentators have looked because of that fact, they've looked at chapter 9, verse 1, and, and they don't think that this really refers to the transfiguration. But, but I would suggest that Jesus' promise in verse 1 finds its initial fulfillment in the transfiguration. Uh, not, not its, it doesn't talk about his full, complete glory and power as it will be in his second coming, but we see his initial fulfillment in the transfiguration. And so it's no coincidence that you see that promise that's given and then the transfiguration that immediately comes after that. And it, and it wouldn't be the disciples' last foretaste of his glory as, as they witness Christ's resurrection. They once again get a foretaste of his glory. But then even on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, they once again see that as well. And so the transfiguration is, is a display of power and, and of glory. Um, so we come to the transfiguration, and we read in verse 2, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now, you know, just reading Mark's gospel, you just think they walked up the mountain, Jesus changed, and, and then all the events happened. But actually, as you look at Matthew's gospel, and Luke's gospel, and Mark's gospel, and you begin to put them together, you get a little bit fuller picture of, of what happened. And Luke supplies a few details, such as when they went up, their whole purpose of going up was to pray. And so they went up on the mountain and they began to pray. But Luke also tells us in Luke 9, 32, that as the disciples were praying, as is often the case, they became weary. They became tired and sleepy and they dozed off. But then we read in Luke's gospel, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. They weren't half asleep. They weren't hallucinating when they saw his glory. They were fully awake. And when they were fully awake, they, they saw his glory. As a matter of fact, Matthew, in Matthew 17, 2, tells us that he was transformed right before them. And so they saw this. And Mark tells us that when he was transformed, that his clothes, in verse 3, became radiant. And it describes it this way. It says, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. In other words, there's no humanly 
possible way that Jesus could have changed like this. This was something that was supernatural. And Matthew tells us that not only did his clothes become like that, but his face shone like the sun. Now, kids, I know you're not supposed to look at the sun, but that doesn't mean that you never have, okay? And maybe if you have looked at the sun, which I'm not telling you to, because it'll hurt your eyes, but if you look at the sun on a bright day, it's so bright that eventually you have to turn your head because you just can't, uh, you know, you just can't take in that much brightness. And that's what it was like for Christ. He's shown like the sun. And so for just a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted. It's like the curtain was pulled back, the veil was pulled back, and the disciples were allowed to see his glory. As one person put it, they said, he slipped back into eternity to his pre-human glory. And it was a glance back and a look forward to his future glory. They got to see Christ in one sense for who he was. And so we see that, that promise of the glory of God. But then the next thing that we'll see uh, is the prophecy of God in verses 4 through 8. And, and really, this is the encounter with Moses and Elijah in verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, how they knew that they were Moses and Elijah, the Bible doesn't tell us. So that's really not an important detail, okay? But, but they did appear. Now, why these two? Well, both of them, these men have previously conversed with God on the mountaintops. Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 31, and Elijah on Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19. And they both had beheld the glory of God. Uh, not only that, but they were both sort of unique too, even in their deaths. You know, Moses, uh, he died on Mount Nebo, but it was God who buried him, and so no one knew where he was buried. And Elijah, he didn't die, kids. He actually was taken up in a chariot of fire. And, and so there's, there's those things that are significant about these two figures. But I would suggest that even greater than that was the fact that Moses was the great lawgiver. He's the one who was the founder of Israel's religious economy, if you want to put it that way. He's the one who brought the people out of Israel. Through him, God gave uh, the laws of God through Moses. He gave the tabernacle that we've been reading about in the Old Testament and all of that. But then Elijah was the great prophet, and he was also the one who was to be the great restorer of Israel, um, as we'll see here in just a little bit uh, later in the sermon. So they came because together they were the ultimate summary of the Old Testament economy. And, uh, and they were talking to Jesus. Now, what were they talking about? Mark doesn't tell us, but Dr. Luke does. He tells us uh, in Luke 9, 31, that they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they were talking about Christ's death on the cross. Now, what they were saying, we don't know. But now, just imagine this, though. And, you know, if, if you were there, that Jesus is glowing brighter than the sun while he's talking to, to Moses, who's been dead for over 1,400 years, at least from an earthly perspective, and Elijah, who's been gone for 900 years. And you could just imagine this sight. And, and I don't know what our response would have been, but 
you know, it, it was, if, if ever there was a time for silence, this was it, you know? But that's not Peter, right? That's not Peter. Peter always had something to say. Even when there was nothing to be said, Peter had something to say. And for those of us who are verbal processors, you understand that, even though most other people don't. But we read in verses 5 and 6 that Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And so it's like he was, he was so fearful, so terrified, that this is what he says. And then Luke adds, uh, in Luke 9.34, And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, Matthew describes the cloud as a bright cloud. Um, and if you look at the Old Testament and you study the Old Testament, it reveals that a, a bright cloud is oftentimes the Shekinah glory of God. It, it was a sign and a manifestation of the presence of God, the form in which God revealed himself to Israel. Now, it's been over 600 years since anyone in Israel has seen the Shekinah glory of God. But Jesus and his disciples stood there, and Mark says in verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Now, this is the voice of the Father. I mean, this is almost for word for word what the Father said of his Son uh, earlier in, in the Gospels. And Matthew says that when the three heard the voice from heaven, he said they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And so they did. And then verse 8 in Mark's gospel concludes like this. And suddenly, almost as quickly as it started, it went away. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The Shekinah glory of God the Father was gone. Uh, Jesus' clothes no longer glowed. Moses and Elijah had disappeared. And only Jesus was there with them. And so that brings us to our third point, and that is the postponement of glory. And this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning in verses 9 through 13 as we sort of think about what this transfiguration means and this showing the glory of God. Verse 9 says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So Jesus commands his three disciples, don't tell anyone until after the resurrection of the dead. But, but do you see, in essence, what Jesus is saying? He, he is saying, even though he has shown his glory, even for a brief moment, as they leave that mountain and they're departing that experience, Jesus is saying in essence that it was not yet time for this picture of a glorious, exalted Messiah to come. Now is not the time for glory, is what Jesus was saying. Jesus' glory is more of a, a prophecy and a promise rather than a present reality. 
Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is not glorious. I'm not saying that. Jesus inherently possesses this glory as the eternal Son of God, okay? You know, so I'm not saying he's not. But he had emptied himself of his glory, as Philippians 2 talks about. He had humbled himself in coming to earth to live like each of us. And he has come to suffer, brothers and sisters. You see, the glory that the disciples wanted, the glory that the Jewish people wanted, uh, would come, and it would come in an even greater way than they imagined. Jesus didn't come just to throw off the Romans, uh, but it would only come after the suffering of the Messiah. Now, verse 10 sort of shows that the disciples were sort of confused over all of this. Because here again, this didn't fit their paradigm of the Messiah, to have a Messiah who suffered. And we read in verse 10, So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead thing might mean. And the disciples, they didn't understand that. Now, if you look back at chapter 8, verse 31, when Jesus is telling who the Messiah is and, and what his mission is, he talks about how he's going to suffer, how he's going to die, and how he's going to rise again from the dead on the third day. But when Peter rebukes Jesus, he doesn't even address the whole thing of the resurrection from the dead. It's like, whew, it just went over his head. The only thing Peter heard was he was going to suffer and he was going to die, you know, and be handed over to the authorities. And that's what Peter was responding to. And, and, and as the disciples once again hear this idea of this resurrection, it's almost like it's a, a totally new concept and, and that they were wrestling with. Well, that led to another question that the disciples had, a very valid question in verse 11. And it says, and they ask him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, to understand this, you've got to understand a little bit about the Old Testament and uh, what Elijah meant to the Jewish people. In Malachi chapter 4, uh, verses 5 and 6, these are the last verses in the English Old Testament, at least. And it was prophesied that Elijah would come first before the Messiah, and he would restore all things. You've got to remember, Malachi was a very uh, dark book, I guess, in one sense. The, the leaders of Israel were unfaithful to the Lord, uh, people were unfaithful to the Lord in their marriages. There was divorce, and you know they were fine with that. There were just all these ways that they were rebelling against the Lord. And at the end of this book, this is what the Lord reveals. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so they were looking for Elijah to come. Uh, they would even set places for Elijah in, in their celebration, the Jewish people, that is. Uh, so they were greatly anticipating him as they were anticipating the Messiah. And so there was a question in the disciples' mind was, is, you know, if, if your glory is not for right now, then why did Elijah come? 
It isn't, doesn't that mean that it's time for Israel's restoration? Well, the disciples had just seen Elijah, and, and so for them, that was the signal for the coming restor restoration. Besides, they had seen Jesus in all his glory, and they, they thought that that was a sign of imminent glory to come. And yet Jesus was saying to them, now is not the time to be glorified. Tell no one about this. And so Jesus gives them his answer in verse 12. He, he does affirm that Elijah is supposed to come, but then he challenges his disciples' interpretation of that by asking his own question. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be tempted, or excuse me, be treated with contempt? In other words, yes, Elijah is supposed to come. Yes, he is the restorer. But then how do you reconcile that with this whole idea of a suffering servant? That's not something that the Jews had, had really wrestled with. And, and they were not integrating their understanding about Elijah's coming and the Messiah's suffering. Uh, if, you, if you take these two things together, this idea of suffering and glory, you'll really see the twofold mission of the Messiah, of the King that was to come. Uh, and we see that back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, where it talks about Christ's suffering. That's, that's part of Christ's mission. But the, 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 the second fold or part of Christ's mission was that he would one day come in glory. We see that in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, as his second coming. And so Elijah would come ushering a time of restoration, which would be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. But this restoration would be to restore people's hearts and souls through the atonement of sin on the cross. Jesus had to suffer and to die as the Lamb of God. And, and he could only bring restoration to God's people if God's people were forgiven for their sins against God. So if you're watching today on the, on the live stream and you've always wondered, why do Christians talk so much about the cross? Why is the cross so important? Well, the cross is important because that's the way that God chose to make things right, where we as sinners could, want, could be forgiven of our sins and we could once again have a relationship with God. And so Jesus does bring this restoration, but he does so through suffering. And yet the disciples and the Jewish people were thinking, that that restoration would be done in glory as some military king would come and deliver his people from their enemies. And so Jesus confirms sort of his point of the idea of the need for suffering uh, in verse 13. Jesus says that Elijah has already come, but the people didn't uh, did to him whatever they wished. And, and in Matthew's account of this, Actually, Matthew records that the disciples understood that when Jesus uh, talked about Elijah, that they understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. And, and yet Jesus says, here is John the Baptist who has come, you know, in, in, the, in the spirit of Elijah. And, and they thought that he would be coming in glory, but actually he came in suffering. And, and King Herod imprisoned him, and his evil wife manipulated Herod into beheading him. So John fulfilled his role as Elijah, but he did so as suffering. 
So do you see what Jesus was doing with the disciples? He was challenging their interpretation, not only of Elijah, but also the mission of the Messiah. You see, the disciples only thought of the Messiah in terms of glory. But Jesus says, and brothers and sisters, I want you to get this. If you don't get anything else, get this. Jesus says, the glory will come, but only after suffering. Glory will come, but only after suffering. You see, Jesus would fulfill this restoration um, that Elijah came to signify, but he would do so through suffering and death. But that's not where Jesus' ministry would end. The humiliation of his suffering and death would break forth into the glory of his resurrection. And, and at his resurrection, Jesus would inaugurate the era of glory as he goes and ascends to the right hand of the Father and, and sits to rule as he does today. And so the resurrection is the beginning of the proclamation of his glory. And that's what we do, brothers and sisters. When we go and we share Christ, we share the glory of what he has done on the cross and in his resurrection. And that's why Jesus' disciples had to wait until the resurrection to start telling the world about the glorious Jesus. But once that resurrection happened, they had to tell the world about the glory of Jesus. And they did. Maybe not right at first, but they did. And so the transfiguration of Jesus stands as a guarantee of Christ's glory to tell us that one day he will come again in a beyond-this-world kind of glory. Now, where we stand as 21st century Christians is, is sort of a unique place because Jesus has been resurrected and he has ascended in, in his glory. And we are proclaiming that glory as we tell people about Jesus Christ and how he can set them free. And yet, we await the fulfillment of that glory. We don't experience that glory in the fullness that we will when he returns with his Father's glory and his holy angels. On that day, Jesus' glory will no longer be just a glimpse on a mountain where for a few moments you behold his face and his clothes shining in all his glory. On that day, his glory will be great. And instead of leaving his glory to go to the cross, uh, we will bask in his glory. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, for they will see him as he actually is. And on that day, we will join in fellowship with him for all eternity, sharing his heavenly glory. And on that day, every tear of suffering will be wiped away. And yet, brothers and sisters, that day is not today. That day is not yet. You see, we live in between the times. And so our life is both a life of glory as Christians and a life of suffering. We suffer now in this world, sharing in Christ's sufferings. But we also taste of Christ's glory as he dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. That's why I'm so excited about what Chris is sharing with us in Sunday school. For us to see the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of his church. Now, I just want to close by thinking about this for a few moments. How does this apply to us? 
I know I've shared a lot of things that you may go, okay, yeah, I know that, but what about us? Well, as Christians, we can go to extremes, one extreme or the other. Uh, you, you see one extreme can be to think that our lives as Christians is already fully realized glory. Uh, we can mistakenly think that, you know, once we become Christians, that we'll no longer have any problems. You know, we can falsely think that we can become perfect in our sanctification in this life. And, and there are those in the, the church who sort of go to that extreme. You know, maybe name it, claim it. You know, those who have the prosperity gospel, they're focusing upon the glory, not the glory of Christ per se, but, but still they're focusing only on glory, never to see the suffering. Or there are those who would teach that you can become perfect in your sanctification in this life. Or maybe we might demand that others would be perfect in their sanctification, even though we would not expect that of ourselves. And so we can have a temptation to be legalistic and, and, and look at other people with judgment and law and then look at our own hearts with grace. But that's what we call an over-realized eschatology. Now kids, eschatology is one of those, it's a big word, okay? But eschatology is the study of the end times. And all time when it ends uh, culminates in heaven and glory. That's when we go to, to be with Jesus in heaven. So to have an over-realized eschatology is to act like the end times are already here in their fullness. And we're, we're looking for our place here upon this earth uh, to be that glory. It is living as if we only live a life of glory. But, but see what, what, we, but what our text says in verse 9, that the disciples did not stay on that mountain. They didn't just bask in the glory of Jesus forever, but they came down from that mountain and they headed to the cross. They went to share in Christ's sufferings just as Christ suffered for us. And so that is now our life in one aspect. We are now being called to live by the way of the cross. That's what Mark was talking about last week when he says we are to take up our cross, right? Die daily and follow Jesus, right? Uh, it, that doesn't just mean as we go through the trials of this life, but that means dying to the things that we want. That means dying to me being the boss and, and myself. And that might come in the form of us obeying God's commands. There, we may be obeying God's commands about certain things, and we feel very good about that. Maybe we have our personal quiet time every day, and we have family worship, and, and you know, we don't you know, swear and use God's name in vain. And there's all these commands that we look at, and we feel very good about. But yet there may be other things that Christ has commanded us to do, that we don't do because those things would make us feel uncomfortable. Maybe we uh, sort of bypass those that we see on the street that are in need. Maybe someone who's homeless. Maybe we have a neighbor who's going through great difficulty and, and the Spirit of God is tugging in our heart to go talk to that person and, and just to see what we can do to, to love them. And we're like, but Lord, their life is so messy. If I start doing that, I could get sucked in. And we say, oh, Lord, I don't want to do that. Brothers and sisters, we need to die to self and, and to do what, what Christ wants us to do. 
and, and maybe our lives, you know, we have unconsciously sort of protected ourselves from suffering by following Jesus just the way we want to follow him rather than the way that he wants us to follow him. But then the other, the other extreme is to have an underrealized eschatology. That's to think that our lives here as Christians have nothing to do with glory, but only about suffering. And so you see some Christians that are living defeated lives. Lives where uh, we think that our Christian life is only about suffering. So we think that our sanctification will make no progress. And we see little progress in our sanctification. And we just think, oh, but there's nothing I can do about it. Or, or we can live our lives just barely clinging to Christ to preserve us in this age, thinking that we are just barely escaping the trials of this world. But as I said, that is an underrealized eschatology, and that's going the opposite way. But if you look at, at verse 9, when the disciples went down from the mountain with Jesus, yes, they went with Jesus to the cross, but see, Jesus was still that glorious Christ. They may not have seen his glory with their physical eyes, but if they looked at him through the eyes of faith, they could behold his glory and they realized that even though he was suffering and he was dying, he was no less the glorious Jesus and Savior that we have. And, and we, brothers and sisters, are participants in this glory to an extent. This glory is so great and it is so much with us that Ephesians 2, 6 says that we can say that we are raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. Do you see that significance? We already share to a, a degree in the Christ's glory. Already we are seated with him in glory in a spiritual sense. And we already have his Holy Spirit that dwells within us as we are in this world. And so that's the contrast that we live in, the tension that we live in. We, there's a sense in which we should expect to suffer and participate in Christ's sufferings. But at the same time, we also participate in his glory. Now, I think those are two extremes that, that Christians can wrestle with. But I think if you, if you think more of the common temptation that we have in this world, that is to make this world our glory. I think that's the, the more common temptation. If I, if I could give you a third observation. It's really to either take this uh, over-realized eschatology or this under-realized eschatology and sort of marry it together with the American dream and, and all that goes along with the American dream. And when you tie all of that together, we can make our earthly positions and status are glory. We can begin to find our identity, not in Christ, but in our jobs or in our marriages or in our families or in our houses or in our possessions or whatever. And it's not that there's anything wrong with these things. But too often we can make these things our idols and, and we desire uh, their glory rather than Christ's glory. But there's a glory that is better than the glory of this world. Just like with the, the Jews, they wanted a Savior, a Messiah, who would come and deliver them from Rome. And Jesus says, oh no, my glory is so much greater than that. I'm not just going to take care of those enemies. I'm going to take care of your greatest enemy, which is sin and death. 
and how. And I'm going to give you a relationship with God once again. And that's the glory that we are to set our hearts upon. You see, later in uh, his ministry, Peter sort of reflected upon this transfiguration. Turn, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Chris actually uh, talks about this in Sunday school. He started with verse 19. I want to start with verse 17 and end with verse 19. Uh, but, but as you're turning there, let me just say this. Peter says in this text that he is an eyewitness to the transfiguration. And he referred to his testimony of this amazing event as a guarantee of glory. And certainly it is. But Peter said that we have an even greater guarantee of glory. Let me read what he says. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, as awesome as that experience was of seeing Christ's glory, Peter argues we have the word of God. If, if we would see the glory of Jesus Christ now, we must read the scriptures just as eagerly as Peter probably wanted to stay on that mountain and just bask in the glory of who Christ was. Because it's the same voice that speaks to both of us. It is Christ. The same testimony is given. Jesus is God's Son. Listen to Him. And as we read His Word, as we meditate upon that, we are hearing the Word of Christ. And our great need is for Jesus himself to explain to us what his word means. He is the one who can touch our eyes and, and make us see again to help us to see as we ought. Yes, we hear that in sermons and we read it in Christian books as we study our private study, uh, meeting with friends. But in the last analysis, it's only Jesus himself who can open our eyes to see what the Holy Spirit says to us in his word. And so his spirit works in us in that same way that the disciples needed continual glimpses of Jesus glory as they encountered the sufferings um, as they walked with Christ. So we need to see his glory, brothers and sisters, as we walk in this world of suffering and difficulty. And that only comes to us as we spend time in his word. Would you please bow with me? as we meditate upon this this morning.
Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for reminding us that the Christian life is, is one of suffering and one of glory. And even as we walk upon this earth, Lord, we, like the disciples, need to see your glory, to see you for, for who you really are. And we thank you, God, that we have that in the scriptures, in the Bible. Oh Lord, help us, we pray, this week as Satan and, and the world, the flesh, our busy schedules, all these things that seem so important are, are pressing in around us. And Lord, may you, by your Holy Spirit, just remind us just to be still and to be before you and in your word as you speak to us as your people to behold your wonderful glory. May, may you encourage us, Lord. I especially want to pray for those in our church this morning uh, that are wrestling with suffering, whatever it may be, physical suffering, maybe spiritually, they're, they're, they're dry, they're, they're wrestling. Whatever form it may take, oh Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit uh, to show them through your word the wonderful glory of Christ. Lord, let us not lose heart. Uh, let us, Lord, follow you. And we pray that you would lead us, Lord, not only individual and as households, but as a church, God, to glorify your name. We thank you and pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.